The End Times Part 5 Spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan A couple of weeks ago, our church partnered with the city of Englewood to hold an event called the Fall Fun Fest. And so we met at McKay Park, and we held our open store where we provided clothes for those who were in need. But we also had kids' activities such as a trunk or treat, a petting zoo, a tattoo station. Some of you may have been skeptical when Pastor Peter said that thousands would come. But that's what happened. So many people came out and had so much fun, including my family. My son Weston, he had so much fun at Fall Fun Fest. Right? He loved it. He loved every part of it. He loved going to each trunk and collecting candy. He loved playing with the bubbles, even to the point where he was pushing other kids out of the way. Right? He loved feeding the animals. Right? We had to rebuke him at one point because he started like, holding out his hand, feeding one individual animal at a time. And then he started just chucking food into the pen, thinking that he could feed more that way. Right? He had so much fun at the Fall Fun Fest. And it was just another reason why he loves Halloween so much. I'm a little embarrassed to say, but my son's favorite Halloween, uh, holiday is Halloween. Right? As a pastor, I don't know how I feel about that. I wish he would love Christmas or Easter a little bit more. But there is one good thing that has come out of his love for Halloween. And that's that my wife Esther and I, we've learned to leverage that to get him to behave. My son, he's at this stage where he loves to say no. And I love that I can communicate with him. I love that I can rationalize with him a little bit. But it's so frustrating when he says no so often. And so my um, secret with dealing with defiant kids is this. Just take away the very thing that they love the most. That will get them to listen to you. My son, he loves Halloween. He loves dressing up. And so for months, he's been waiting to wear his costume. He's been waiting to be Captain America. And for months, we've been threatening him. Whenever we ask Wes, hey, go brush your teeth or get ready for bed, he'll be like, no, I'm not ready. And so we say, well, I guess we're not going trick-or-treating this year. I guess we're going to throw away your costume. Immediately, he says, yes, I'll go do it. Right? It got to a point where we didn't even have to threaten him. We would just make a move towards our bedroom where we were storing his costume. And the moment he saw us move that way, he's like, don't throw away my Captain America costume, right? It didn't even matter that he was listening or not. He was just so scared that we would take away the very thing that he loved the most. Now, parents, I'm not advocating that you follow my lead when it comes to parenting. Please don't, right? This is my opportunity to confess to you, to repent before you. And it would be great for me to hear you say, you are forgiven, Right? We talk about it in the church often, right? Confession, repentance is so important, but it's so important that we tell our brothers and sisters that we're forgiven. But I will say the one thing um, that I am happy about is that he's learned a lesson. He's learning a lesson, right? I don't, I'm not proud that I'm instilling so much fear in him, but I am proud or I am happy that he is learning that he is accountable for his actions. There are consequences to the things that he says and does. Now, I hope it, wasn't, it wouldn't be out of fear that he was doing things, and it was more out of love, but at least he knows there are consequences to the things that he does. And it's the same for us. We have the freedom to choose and to make decisions um, based on what we would like, but we will be accountable for those choices. 
And as we continue in our series on the end times, what we're going to learn is that how we live in preparation for Jesus' return matters. Jesus is coming back, and we will have to take account for how we live in the present. So many of us, we reduce our faith to our beliefs. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross, saving us from our sins. We believe in the resurrection and that he defeated sin and death. We believe so many things about Jesus, but that's not what we're going to be held accountable for. We will be held accountable for how we put our faith and belief into action. Belief is just the starting point of our faith. But it's in choosing to live faithfully for Jesus that we see the evidence of that faith. It is faithfulness that God desires for you and me. Today, we're going to take a look at what it means to be faithful as we await Jesus' return. And to do that, we're going to read Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? And we're going to start with verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your, ha- in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has been using parables to teach about the end times. 
In the previous parable about the ten bridesmaids, which Pastor IJ preached on last week, we see a picture of why it's so important to be ready. In this parable, we are given a picture of what readiness and preparation looks like. In this parable, we are told that a master is going on a journey and he entrusts his servants with his property. After some time, the master returns to settle accounts. He holds each servant accountable for how they used his resources. But the criteria by which they are judged is not what you would think. If we were being evaluated today for our work, we would probably be judged by our success or our production or our results. But God only cares about one thing, and that one thing is faithfulness. The servants were judged and evaluated on their faithfulness. Reading this passage, you might think that the servants were judged by their success or their, the amount that they gained, because the two that had gained a lot were said, were, met the master's approval, while the one who didn't gain anything was rejected. But when we look at the master's response, we see it's about faithfulness. The amount that the servants were given was a great sum of money. Some scholars will uh, equate a talent to 15 or 20 years of a day laborer's wage. Other scholars will say that a talent is worth, in today's currency, $600,000. Right? It's not a small amount. These are big sums of money. But to the master, it was nothing. He even goes on to describe the talents as a small amount when he responds to the servants, you have been faithful with a few things. He's calling the talents that were given to these servants a few things. It wasn't about the money for this master. It wasn't about the results. It wasn't about the money that was gained. What the master was focusing on was how each servant used the resources that they had been given. And we find out that two of the servants acted faithfully while one servant acted fearfully. The one servant who had been given five bags of gold gained five more, and the master commends him by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The second servant who has been given two bags of gold gained two more, and like the first, the master is well pleased and responds again, well done, good and faithful servant. Both servants received the same words, even though the amount gained was different. They both acted in faith. But it's with the third servant that we see a different response. The third servant who was given one bag of gold did not use his resources to profit the master. Instead, he dug a hole into the ground and placed the talent there so he wouldn't lose it. The third servant who buried the master's property acted out of fear. He was afraid of losing the money. He was afraid that a thief would come and steal it. He was afraid, most of all, of the master. In justifying his actions, the third servant says in verse 24, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. He saw the master as a hard man. He believed that the master was unethical and corrupt, seeking profit from things that he hadn't worked for. And because of this, he acted out of fear. Do you find yourself living by faith or by fear? 
the answer hinges on a key question. And that question is, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Is he someone to be feared? Or is he somebody to be revered? How you answer this question will determine how you will live now in the present. In the Bible, we are told that we are to fear God. But fear in the Bible, whenever we see that word fear for God, it's usually, it, the better translation for that is to revere. Wait, we are to have a reverence for God. We are to have this holy fear for God, which is founded in his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his might. These are all good things. It is not a fear that leads us to hide from him, but one that beckons us closer to him. We are to fear God, to have this reverence for him because of how amazing he is. The lens by which we experience God is impacted by, by our view of him. If we see God as this angry God, then everything that happens in our life will be seen through those lens. Right? If we see God as an angry God, whenever we're going through hardship or suffering, we see God being angry at us and inflicting the pain on us. If we see God as a loving God, then we see our hardships and suffering not as God inflicting pain on us, but as the one who's carrying us through it, the one who's giving us the strength to endure. If we see God as a killjoy who just wants to take all our fun away, then guess what? The commandments that he gives to us, they're oppression for us. It's like living in a prison rather than being liberating and giving us the freedom to live the abundant life. Our view of God will inform our experience of God and having a wrong attitude about God will lead to disobedience. A misconception of who God is will lead to alienation, distrust, and unfaithfulness towards him. How many of you are fearful that God's going to ruin your life if you gave him everything? If you gave him all of yourself? That notion is founded in an incorrect view of God. If God is good, loving, and faithful, how can we believe anything else except that God wants the best for us? If we're scared to give God our everything, it shows that we may not be viewing God in the right way. And this is why it's so important that we separate the truth from perception. It's important for us to have a right conception of God rather than a misconception of him. We need to be able to see God for who he truly is. In this passage, the, the master represents God. And it would be easy for us to think that what Jesus is saying is that God is wicked and God is corrupt. But that is exactly not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the opposite. He is saying God is good. God is faithful. God is not evil. This description of the master, of being this hard man, is only a view that the third servant had. Neither of the other two servants described the master in this way. But when we look at the entire passage, we see that this description of him is way off. Because the master puts a lot of faith in his servants and entrusts them with his wealth. He is not obligated to give them anything. But he wants to, them to partner with him in what he is doing. He is generous. We read that if they are faithful, that he wants to reward them with more. 
He wants his servants to share in his joy, right? Ultimately, Jesus wants you to experience joy. Everything points to this master being good and generous. And so I would suggest that this unfaithful servant didn't know the master at all. When we have a right relationship with God and know his true nature and character, we will operate out of faith rather than in fear. And this living by faith that we're talking about isn't just obedience. I think sometimes we can oversimplify things and just say to obey is to be faithful. And that's partially true. But faithfulness is so much more than just to obey. Notice in the passage, the master did not give his servants any instructions. He just simply leaves them with his resources for them to do as they see fit. Their faithfulness was not based on how well they followed his instructions because there were no instructions. They were to use their own discernment and wisdom and take the initiative to act in a manner that would please the master. Faithfulness is about pleasing God. It is about knowing the heart of God and wanting to live in a way that honors him. And so as we think about faithfulness in a time of waiting, what does faithfulness look like as we await Jesus' return? The first thing is, we are faithful when we are good stewards of our resources and gifts. We are good stewards of our gifts and resources. We are called to be good stewards of the gifts that God's given to us. Look at what it says in verse 15. To one he gave the five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The master in the parable gives his wealth, his gold, to his servants. The master is the owner of this gold, but he entrusts it to his servants. In the same way, God is the owner of everything. Everything that we have is a gift from him. Being a good steward begins with understanding that everything is God's. Although we would want to believe that what we have is earned by our own hands and our own work, these are things that God has blessed us with. God is able to give and take away at any moment. Being a good steward is about recognizing God's provision in our lives and using the things that he's given to us for God's purposes. The two faithful servants in the parable used what was given to them to earn more for the master. They didn't seek their own gain. They weren't scheming on how they can use this to make their lives more comfortable. They were single-minded and focused on one thing, to profit the master. Are you using God's resources for God's gain or for your own? And the bigger question is, are you building God's kingdom or are you too busy building your own? Are you building God's kingdom or are you building your own kingdom? If you want to know the answer to that question, take a look at how you are using your resources. How are you spending your time? How are you using your influence? How are you spending your money? One of the topics that Jesus speaks about most in the Bible is money. And the reason for that is because Jesus knows how much we struggle with the love of money. Even to the point where tithing and giving have become options for us. But tithing is not an option for a disciple. It's a biblical mandate 
by God that we would give and tithe to support the work that he's doing around the world. Your tithe cannot be summed by the dollar value that you give. Your tithe is about building the kingdom of God. When you give, you're partnering with God in the work that he is doing in this community and around the world. But so many of us, we see tithing as just giving money to the church. But what tithing is really about is people experiencing the love of God and becoming disciples of Jesus. How could we not give knowing that our tithes go to people experiencing the love of God that we've experienced? Many of you know that we have a prison ministry here at Metro. Uh, through the ministry, many of you have gone to participate and to worship with inmates at East Jersey State Prison. And over the years, our brothers at prison have blessed us just as much as we have tried to be a blessing to them. And one such blessing came this week. This past week, we received a donation of $100 from one of the brothers at East Jersey State Prison. And to give you some context about this amount, uh, inmates in New Jersey prisons typically make about 25 cents to $2 an hour. Right, so if this brother gave a $100 donation, that means that he's been saving up for a long while. But he gave because he believes that God laid it upon his heart to give, but also he believes in the work that God is doing here in this church. This is an act of faithfulness. He counted the cost. He knew what he was sacrificing, but he also knew how the money would go to impact people's lives. He was being faithful with what God had given to him, and he was a steward of the gifts that God had given to him. Tithing and giving is rooted in stewardship. You are giving to God what is already his in building his kingdom. And one thing that I've learned about giving is that you can never outgive God. Right? You can never outgive God. When we look at this passage, we see that the servants who had been faithful were, were rewarded with more. And now I'm not saying that God is going to give you more money if you give. I'm not saying that you're going to have more and more money. But what I am saying is that you will be blessed far more by God than you could ever bless God. Metro, when it comes to being a good steward, it's about understanding that what we've been given is a gift from God and to use it for God's purposes. But it's also about being a good steward of our gifts and talents. In the passage, we're told that the servants were given a certain amount of gold according to their ability. The one with five talents was more gifted. The one with one talent was less gifted. But regardless of how much, they were all gifted. They had capabilities. They had talents. You all have so many gifts and talents, but what's keeping you from using them? Some of you aren't stewarding your gifts because you're too busy coveting or wanting other gifts. I'm sure there are certain gifts that we would all desire for ourselves, but in doing so, are you devaluing the gifts that God has given to you? God created you in a specific way for a specific purpose. Your giftedness and talents are a blessing that God wants you to use. So don't waste them. 
Some of you are wasting your talents, and that breaks God's heart. Having talent without using it is just potential. And untapped potential is just wasted opportunity. In a church of our size, we have great potential for community. Some people look at the size of our church and actually see it as a disadvantage. They say, I've heard it so many times where people are like, Metro is too big. It's too hard to find community. But I think being a larger church should actually be an advantage for finding community. You would think that with a greater number of people, there's a greater chance that you'll find someone that you can connect with. But that's not the case. Some of us have been struggling to find community here. And I understand your pain. When I, first came here to, when I first came to Metro 11 years ago, even being a pastor on staff, it was really hard for me to find community. I remember they wouldn't even let me be part of the Christmas party because I wasn't a partner. And so I was struggling for a year and a half of just being alone and not having anyone that I can relate to or to connect with. So I understand your pain. I understand how difficult and how painful it is not having community or not finding community. Well, my encouragement to you, if you are struggling to find community right now, is that you would stick with it. You would stick with it. Because you are a gift to this church, even if people haven't realized it yet. And for those of you who have found community here already, can I encourage you to be intentional about inviting other people into that community? The number one reason why people leave Metro is because of a lack of community. And it would be a shame that in a church that is this large, that people would still struggle to find community. It's us wasting our gift. And it would be a shame to see people leave because of that. Metro, what is the point of having potential if we're going to let it go to waste? What's the point of having a large church and people can't find community? What's the point of being gifted and talented if you aren't going to use those talents? In the passage, we're told that the consequence of not putting our talents to work is that it will be taken away. The one talent that the third servant had, he didn't use. And so it was taken from him. But that's not the worst part. The worst part in all of this isn't that he lost his talent. It's it's that he missed out on his opportunity to share in the master's joy. The real tragedy of wasting your gifts isn't that you'll lose them, but that you'll miss out on experiencing the father's joy. And the scary part about not experiencing the father's joy is that it may mean that we're going to be going to hell. Because to be separated from God, to be uh, apart from his presence is hell. And what God wants to do is to invite you into his presence, to invite you into community with him. And so if we're missing out on the Father's joy, that might mean that we're going to be going to hell. God is inviting you to partner with him. He is inviting you to be in community with him. He's inviting you to use the gifts and the talents that he's given to you because the joy that comes from that will last for all eternity. So don't let your gifts and talents go to waste. Faithfulness requires us to be a good steward of the gifts and talents and the resources that God has given to us. As we await Jesus' return, that is what it means to be faithful. 
And the second thing we can do in being faithful is to take risks with purpose. We are faithful when we are taking risks with purpose. God doesn't mind failure, but we have an aversion to failure. We don't want to take risks. We don't want to be seen as a failure. And so oftentimes, we play it safe. But playing it safe is being unfaithful. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The servant's actions are driven by fear. He was afraid of the master because of the way he saw him. But there's another reason for his fears. And that was a fear of failure. And we know this by the master's response. In verse 26 and 27, we are told, the master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The master's response isn't an admission of guilt. The master is not admitting that he is an unethical or corrupt person. Looking at this response, he actually leaves a key word out in, in responding to this one servant. He, said, he doesn't say, he leaves out the word hard. He is saying he is not a hard man. What the master is doing is using the servant's words, his own words, against him. He's saying, so this is what you believed in me. If you really believe this about me, then you should have at least done the bare minimum of putting my money into, into the, with the bankers and giving me a profit. He is using the servant's excuse against him. The servant's actions were partially driven by his fear of failure. He didn't trust in his own abilities, even though the master trusted his abilities. We need to stop being afraid of failing because it's okay to fail. If we fear failure, then we are making it too much about ourselves, and it's also an indication of low self-esteem. I was at a conference where a psychologist was giving this talk, the seminar, to students. And what she was saying was that students who procrastinate do so because of their fear of failure. Right? Students procrastinate because they fear failure. They have low self-esteem. They don't trust in their abilities. And so it's easier to procrastinate when studying because it's a lot better to get a B or C than failing and not getting an A by studying all that, by studying really hard. Right? Kids will procrastinate because then they'll have an excuse or rationalization for why they didn't do so well. They'll look at that B or C and be like, you know what? That's pretty good. I did pretty good for the amount of time that I had, rather than striving for that A. Students are settling for a worse grade because they fear failure. Why are we settling for lesser things when God wants, us, wants to give us greater things? You need to stop making it about yourself and let go of your fear of failure so that God can use you. Stop allowing your fears to dictate what God can do through you. If you are not taking risks for God because of your fears, you are being selfish because God wants to use you to bless others.
God doesn't mind failure. But what he does mind is you not stepping out in faith. The things that God will call you to do will be risky at times. They will require faith, but you can be confident in taking those risks because it's not for nothing. When God asks you to take a risk, it's always for a purpose. Risking failure for a worthy cause is always worth it. And there's no greater cause than to please God and share in his joy. Sharing in his joy is never about the results, but it's about the heart. God doesn't care about the results so much as he cares about your heart and your willingness to to lay it all down for him. How many of us would be willing to be a fool, to look like a fool for God? To do the will of God, to risk failure, to experience being humbled isn't the worst thing in life. It is far worse to never step out in faith because you will never experience the victories that come from taking risks. Faithfulness requires us to take risks because a lot of times the things that God calls us to are God-sized. So as we await Jesus' return, we have to be good stewards of our resources and gifts, but we also have to take risks because God wants us to do the greater things. And finally, the last thing we can do in being faithful is to put our faith into practice. We are faithful when we are putting our faith into practice. In this parable, two servants are commended for their action, while one servant is rejected and called out for his inaction. The servants aren't being called faithful because of what they believe, but it's in putting their belief into action. The two faithful servants know what the master desires and acts accordingly. They go to work immediately. There's an urgency about what they're doing. Living faithfully and working to build God's kingdom matters. It is evidence of our discipleship. The reality is that we will be judged and held accountable for how we live in the present. And this parable serves as a warning and a test of our discipleship. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. We have to put that faith and that belief into action because if we don't, then the reality is that we may be going to hell. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. That third servant was thrown out into the darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. For some of you, that is scary. But God is not trying to scare you into believing. This is not a message about doing so that you can earn salvation. It isn't about earning our way into heaven. I'm not talking about works-based faith. Salvation cannot be earned, but faith without action is meaningless. In James chapter 2, we're told, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We cannot earn our way into heaven. It's only by the grace of God that we are saved. But effort does matter. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. All right, let me say that again. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Effort is the outworking of our faith and partnering with God and what he's doing in the world. 
We're not trying to earn our way into heaven, but we are trying to work and to be faithful to God and what he's called us to. What we do because of our beliefs is just as important as what we believe. Our faith is more than just showing up on a Sunday for a sermon. It is more than just reading the Bible. It's more than singing songs of worship. These are all things important to our faith. But in the end, if we do nothing to build God's kingdom, then it's meaningless. I don't think Jesus would be pleased if he came back and saw us today worshiping together, but not doing anything for the marginalized, the poor, and the lost. If our faith was only evident on Sunday morning, I think God would be disappointed. The purpose of the church isn't so that people would simply gather together. The purpose and mission of the church has always been about gathering together so that we could go and scatter carrying the good news. If our faith isn't being put into practice, then do we even have faith? A few years ago, I found myself having to deal with some potentially ministry-destroying rumors. I was leading the high school ministry at the time, and we were seeing real big growth. A lot of kids were coming out, and we're trying to be faithful to the mission that God had given to us, or the calling that God had given, given to us, to really be a place for the church and also the unchurched. And so our youth group was a diverse group made up of kids who had grown up in the church, but also of kids from the community who had never been part of a church. The ministry was thriving, but all of a sudden, there were rumors that kids were being sexually active on church grounds. And so when I first heard that, I was shocked. I was like, there's no way that this could even be possible. But then my shock turned into shame, and I just started to feel like a failure. I felt like a failure as a leader. I felt like I was a failure as a pastor because of what was happening under my watch. And I struggled, and it was really hard for me to really even see how this might be affecting the church. I was worried that this was going to impact the church and bring the church down. It was a really dark time in my life because I was so afraid of what would happen to this church. I was so afraid of how it was going to impact it, but also I was so afraid because I thought maybe I wasn't called into ministry. I struggled on my calling into ministry. I thought maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not talented enough or gifted enough as a pastor. I questioned God. I was like, God, why is this happening? And there was times where I was just on my hands and knees and just asking God, what do I do? I thought about quitting. But through the wise counsel of my friends and mentors, I was reminded about my calling. I was reminded that I was called to this place for this time at Metro. I had to remember my purpose and my giftings that God had gifted me in this way and he's given me a passion for kids and students and that I am called to love them and to help them know who Jesus is. And for a while, that's all I could cling to. The only thing I could cling to for so long was just my calling because things didn't get better right away. They actually got worse before they got better. And it wasn't overnight like God solved the problem. People left. The ministry struggled. 
But through it all, God was being faithful in this church. God was being faithful in our youth group. God was doing his work, not only in the youth group, but he was also working in me. And so thankfully, you know, we got the denomination involved and we tried to figure out what was happening, where these rumors are coming from. And from our looking into it, they just seemed to be rumors. But I'm so glad that I didn't quit. I'm so glad that I didn't allow my fear and experience of failure to keep me from continuing to do ministry, continuing to use my gifts, continuing to obey God's call in my life and to take risks for the church. Because if I had, I would have missed out on something so beautiful. I would have missed out on the resurrection and restoration of our youth group. Yes, it got bad. Our youth group dwindled. But through time, God really raised it up and it got to a place where it's been better than it's ever been. When we choose to be faithful by being good stewards, by taking risks, and by putting our faith into action, God will be faithful in our lives. Jesus is clear about what the future holds. He will come back and we will have to take into account for how we live. What he desires is faith over fear. So don't let your fears keep you from living faithfully for him. My hope and my prayer for all of us today is that when Jesus comes back, we would hear him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you bow with me? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. God, these are the words that we long to hear from you. These are the very words that we long to hear from you. God, we hope and pray that when we come face to face with you, you will be well pleased not only by what we believe and our proclamation that we made even today, God, in saying the Apostles' Creed, but that you would be well pleased with how we live in faithfulness. Our prayer, God, is that we would share in your joy. And for people, and for anyone, God, right now who's struggling with fear, I believe that there are people in this room who are struggling with fear, fear of other people's approval, fear of failure, fear of discomfort, fear of just not being good enough. I pray that you would put those fears to rest. And that instead of looking at our own shortcomings or perceived shortcomings, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the cross because on the cross we see, God, that we are worthy, that you have gifted us, that you have made us, you have created us with talents, that you have created us so wonderfully, God, that you didn't make a mistake in us. God, you say that perfect love casts out fear. And so I pray, Father, right now that we would understand and experience your perfect love right now so that we would stop being afraid and so that we could live faithfully for you. 
God, what you desire is faithfulness for us to step out in faith. And that's not just when we come here on a Sunday, but it's each and every day. And so may we live lives that worship you. May we live lives that exalt you. May we live lives showing the world, God, how great you are. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.